You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. If you will, please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. It is page 1013 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it's page 1013. 1013, not 1015, 1013. So church, 52 years ago, this past April, America was on the edge of their seats for almost a week. For the third time, the Apollo space program was attempting to land men on the moon. However, what began as a smooth and relatively routine operation quickly turned into a life or death situation. A simple stir of the oxygen tank caused an explosion, which led to insurmountable damage to the spacecraft and oxygen that was used for life support and electricity began leaking from the ship, and precious time started ticking. The lunar landing was canceled, and the mission controllers in Houston focused all of their efforts on finding a way to bring Apollo 13, the crew of Apollo 13, home alive. Chief Flight Director Gene Kranz told his flight controllers, he said, the crew is coming home. you got to believe it. Your team must believe it, and we must make it happen. You see, Gene, along with his entire team, refused to let up and leave behind their own. There was no way they were going to let their own people go down and die without a fight. They had a failure is not an option attitude. And so they committed all of their energy and resources to finding a way to save the astronauts and bring them home. And by God's grace, we know the end of that story, they made it home. Church, in many ways, the steadfast attitude and effort of the NASA crew to bring home those astronauts illustrates the type of attitude and effort that we as a church should have when it comes to bringing home a believer who has gone wayward in their faith. When we see one of our own get lost, go off the straight and narrow, or wander away from the faith, we should commit a great deal of energy and resources to finding a way to save them and bring them home. Jesus said in Luke 15, 4 through 7, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine to the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, oftentimes we apply these verses to unbelievers. We think about that lost soul, but this can rightly be applied to believers as well. And friends, if we're honest, instead of seeking after the wayward saint, if we're honest, we have a tendency to kind of just let him him go, let him stray. And I think we do this because seeking after a straying saint is messy, and it's awkward, and it's uncomfortable. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking about straying, just save uh, uh, save us all on that. We don't want any of the awkward conversations with you. Just stay on the straight and narrow and everything will be okay. But see, when we choose not to seek after them, we're actually aiding in their spiritual regression. Because if we're not coming for them, who is? 
And so, church, God has given us a responsibility to do everything in our power to reclaim a backsliding believer. He's called us to seek after them with a failure is not an option attitude because in doing so, we can literally save them from self-destruction and even death. And so this morning, as we conclude our study in the book of James, we're going to learn more about, about doing exactly that. And it's through our study we're going to be reminded of this vital truth. And it's this, the righteous must relentlessly pursue the wayward. And so let's pray one more time before we hop into God's word. Lord, I thank you for the book of James. I thank you for just the challenge it's been to our hearts. And, and even when James wrote this letter 2,000-some years ago, Lord, it, you just laid on his heart to just say, how, say it how it is. Just, just lays it out there for us. And, and God, I'm thankful for that just straight-shooting approach. God, we need it. And we pray that this morning you would use your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So from the very beginning of this letter, James' primary concern was that the Jerusalem church have a true, living, and active faith. He didn't want to see any believer go wayward in their walk with God. Because not only does it hurt their testimony and witness, but it embarrasses the name of Jesus. In fact, when you get right down to it, the whole book of James was actually written to prevent this from happening. Chuck Swindoll wisely noted, he said, throughout the, his letter, James has pinpointed specific areas in which Christians have begun to slip. Doubt during trials, blaming when tempted, anger and prejudice, sterile intellectualism, a loose tongue, jealousy, arrogance, being judgmental, planning without God, taking advantage of others because of wealth, a lack of prayer, to name a few. He says, for these five chapters, James has been coming to our rescue. And so knowing this, it's no surprise that James would end his letter by calling the righteous within the church to relentlessly pursue the wayward within the church. So let's begin by reading his closing thoughts, and then we'll break it down. It's just two verses at the end of the book, verses 19 and 20. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, by God's grace, I have never been in a car accident before, at least not a major car accident. I've had a fender bender here and there, but nothing major that required the jaws of life to get me out. You see, the jaws of life are big cutters used to cut away doors and give access to people who are trapped and in trouble. They're used to get you out of a bad situation. Well, as believers, we are called to be the jaws of life to one another. Did you know that? We're supposed to be the jaws of life to one another. When another believer is trapped in a bad situation, we should stand ready to rescue them. And according to James, this is especially true even if they're stuck in a bad situation because of their own sinful choices. It's our job to be the jaws of life and try and pull them out. And so in today's passage, there are three points to consider concerning the backslider. And so let's begin by looking at the first Number one, it's just the risk of backsliding, the risk. Uh, look at just the first part of 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Let's take a pause there. When Robert Robertson was 23 years old, he penned the words to the beloved hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And almost prophetically, he wrote the words, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God. I love. Because sadly, he went through substantial periods of his life when he did wander from the Lord later in life. 
When he was 23 and newly saved, he was all excited about God, but almost prophetically he wrote those words because it actually happened. It's been noted that Robinson had periods of great spiritual instability and even toyed with false doctrines opposed to the truth of Scripture. Some 30 years later, he was riding on a stagecoach when a lady sitting next to him was humming the tune of Come Thou Fount and singing the words out loud. And then this lady turned to Robinson and she held open a hymn book and, and, and she asked him, had you ever heard this hymn before? And after a long pause, Robinson burst into tears and said to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. One author noted, Robinson was a gifted preacher who held audiences spellbound. He was a talented writer and a well-studied theologian. He was a devotional Christian who's written books about his Savior that touched many hearts, yet he was an unstable man, impulsive, eccentric, and one whose heart often strayed from the Lord. But God, who had saved him and called him and longed after him, was the God who restored him by his own hymn. The prodigal's father had never let him go. Psalm 116.7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. God used a faithful, unsuspecting believer singing a familiar tune to return Robert Robinson to his rest. And as a result, he lived the rest of his life to give God glory. Church, James begins by reminding us that at any given moment, listen, at any given moment, we too are prone to wander. We too are prone to wander. The words uh, among you imply that James, he's addressing the church. He's addressing, this whole book, he's addressing believers. And just like a distracted sheep, it doesn't take much. You know this, right? You're not affirming it, but you know it because you just don't want to affirm it out loud. It doesn't take much to entice us to go into another field and kind of leave the safety of the flock and the shepherd's care. And this is especially true when we're under spiritual attack. See, remember, the Jerusalem church was experiencing suffering and mistreatment on account of their faith, and some of them were spiritually depleted and defeated. Friends, when a believer hits rock bottom, they have one of two choices. They can either lean on God, who is the rock at the bottom, or they can lose their way. And evidently, there were some within the Jerusalem church who had lost their way. See, that phrase, to wander from the truth, is to backslide, both in your beliefs and your behavior. It's not instantaneous. It's a gradual movement away from the things of God. And church, this is a dangerous place to be for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. In 2004, a guy named Morgan Spurlock made a documentary called Supersize Me. Anyone ever see Supersize Me? The film chronicled a 30-day period during which Spurlock only ate McDonald's food. Guy's my hero. But within a month, Spurlock gained almost 25 pounds, increased his cholesterol, experienced mood swings, bodily dysfunction, depression, and near liver failure. Da-da-da-da-da. I'm loving it. <laughs> I recently read that all these years later, he's still experiencing some side effects from the experiment. Can you believe that? 
You see, church, when a believer begins to experiment with wandering from the truth, little by little, they're going to eat away, it's going to eat away at their bodies both physically and spiritually. Just like eating McDonald's for a month, at first you may not see or feel the effects. However, in time, those unhealthy effects will manifest themselves, and some of them are going to carry lifelong consequences. It's for this reason that God won't let a backsliding believer go undisciplined. You see, the Bible teaches that God disciplines those he loves. See, we, always, we often think of discipline as, as a bad thing, but actually God disciplines those he loves the same way a good parent ought to discipline their kids because they love them, yes? So if you're a wayward child of God, then you better believe that God the Father is going to do everything he can to bring you back to himself because he loves you and he cares for you deeply. But with that being said, even though God's discipline is an act of love, it often involves tough love. In fact, his discipline can be downright painful. Look at Psalm 38, 1 through 4. David wrote, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Does that sound like a guy who's having a good time? You see, in today's world, church, most therapies for disease and injury require hurting the body in order to heal the body. Surgeries require cutting through healthy tissue to reach unhealthy tissue. Radiation and chemotherapy require poisoning the body to kill the cancer. Physical therapy requires painful movements to strengthen muscles. In this psalm, David admits his sin and acknowledges that God's discipline is just. However, at the same time, God's discipline was incredibly painful. But David needed to be hurt in order to be healed. And church, let's face it, we can be a very stubborn and prideful people. And a mere slap on the wrist from the Lord isn't always going to get our attention. And so for the wayward believer, sometimes a more intense, often painful type of discipline is needed to bring healing and restoration. The great physician of our souls loves us way too much to give us any less than his best on the operating table. And so he's going to bring it. Even if it hurts. Number two, second, backsliding is dangerous because it could have a detrimental impact on the church. Ecclesiastes 9.18 says, One sinner destroys much good. Only takes one. You know, one of the areas that we constantly hammer home with our kiddos is being wise and choosing their friendships. Why? Because we know that one lone rebel in the group can have a powerful influence on the whole group. And so we don't want our kids negatively influenced and led astray. Well, the same can happen in the church. A backsliding believer can lead those within the church astray. They can bring the whole church down with them. Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so, in other words, small things can make a huge impact. Just like a little, least, a little yeast blows up the bread, a little wandering from the truth can blow up a church. And so we need to be careful. Number three, backsliding is dangerous because it may result, this is a tough one, in premature death. It could literally be deadly. Earlier in this letter, James wrote in James 1.15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth 
death. You see, it's possible for a believer to flirt with premature death by continuously engaging in sinful behavior. Now, just to be clear, we are not talking about a believer who struggles with day-to-day sin issues. That's not who James has in mind, because if he did, we'd all be flirting with, with premature death. We'd all be in trouble. We're talking about that believer who willingly and consistently chooses to engage in a sinful lifestyle without remorse or repentance. Once their sin becomes fully grown, it will result in the most severe course of God's discipline, their untimely death. And just to be clear, death does not mean eternal damnation. It means temporal destruction. The souls of those who have placed their faith in Jesus are eternally secure, even the wayward ones. However, for the unrepentant backslider, there may come a time when their sinful, self-destructive lifestyle will get the best of them. And God, in the ultimate act of what I would say loving discipline, will take their lives and bring them to himself. Now, church, it's not for us to speculate whether or not we're somebody had passed away because of that or not, but I do. I, I know people. I know, I know, I know believers who have, who have just engaged uh, in sinful patterns and lifestyles and allowed that sin to overcome them to the point where they're li- they died. And I'm not going to say whether or not that was God or not, but I'm just saying that happens. You can't play with sin forever and not expect God's word not to come to pass. Fully grown brings forth death. I like what John Piper said, though. He said, God is taking the sinning saint because he loves him so much that he will not let him go on in sin. Friends, no one wants to stand before the Lord having their lives cut short because of sin. Can you imagine? The good news is that, generally speaking, this drastic stage of God's discipline won't come without advanced attempts to get our attention. Like what Romans 2.4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? So church, all of this to say, the discipline of God is an extension of his loving kindness. It's meant to strengthen and restore us, not condemn or destroy us. The Bible doesn't give us a timeline, by the way, for when our sin is considered to be fully grown. And so therefore, we'd be wise not to play Russian roulette with the Lord. Immediate repentance is always the best practice. It will prevent you, it will prevent your sin from growing, and it may literally, may literally save you from death. I like what 1 John 1 9 says. We 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 quote it often. If we confess our sins, how many of you are thankful for this verse in the scripture, by the way? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. This leads us to the second point, the response to backsliding. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, someone brings him back, talking about the believer in the church. Friends, a a story is told of a missionary couple who brought some African natives to the United States for a conference. And since they've never been to the States, during their free time, the natives wanted to explore the area. And even though they were in a small town, the missionary knew there was a chance that one of them might have some difficulty finding their way uh, around or get lost. And so the missionary gave each native his phone number just in case of an emergency. Well, in less than an hour, the missionary's phone rang and one of the natives said, I am lost. 
And the missionary replied, okay, lay down the phone, go to the street corner, find out the names of the two streets, and come back and tell me. And after a few minutes, the native returned and reported, I am at the corner of walk and don't walk. <laughs> you see, church, some, some backsliding believers are so lost and directionless that they can't even read the signs around them to get them back home. If a believer is stuck in a sin for which he cannot free himself, it's the job of the church to intervene. Just like the Beatles, we need to tell the backsliders to get back, get back, get back to where you once belonged. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When I was in high school, I broke my wrist playing indoor soccer. I think I've told you this story before. But in fact, I didn't just break my wrist, I snapped my wrist. My hand was hanging from a 90-degree angle from my wrist. That's how bad it was. You're welcome. And evidently, the break was so bad that the school needed to call an ambulance. And while I was sitting in the ambulance, I went to a Catholic high school uh, growing up. While I was sitting in the ambulance, all I could see uh, as I'm laying there, lifeless, uh, eh, I look through the windows and there's the priest blessing the ambulance as I'm driving away. <laughs> he knew it was bad. But see, I, I was so broken that day physically that I needed a doctor. I needed an outside influence to set my bone back into place. He didn't even do that great of a job setting it back into place, but my hand still works. But the word translated restore is used when setting a bone back into its former usefulness. Some backsliding believers are so broken, they just need a good outside influence to set them back into place. Tony Evans said, if you are trapped in something that doesn't please God, you need help from someone who can work on God's behalf. This is one of the reasons, in fact, why believers are to be united with a local church. See, God calls the righteous saints within the church to do everything possible to restore the wayward saints within the church. Now, one of the keys in this restoration process is doing it in a spirit of gentleness. When I arrived at the hospital, the doctors and nurses didn't flail my wrists around when I got there, causing even more pain. Yes, they tackled my problem head on, but they also treated me with patience and care and kindness. Imagine that. They did everything possible to keep my pain at a minimum. Let me tell you, my pain was bad. I had as much morphine in me as humanly possible, and I could still feel the pain. It was rough. When confronting a wayward brother or sister, we need to adopt the same approach. We're to be compelled by love, moved by compassion, empowered by prayer, and emboldened to confront the issue head-on, while at the same time doing our very best to keep the pain at a minimum. In addition, the Apostle Paul also warns us, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Church, we need to remember something, that we are made out of the same stuff that the wayward believer is made out of. Just because we're righteous today doesn't guarantee we're going to be righteous tomorrow. Apart from God's grace and his Holy Spirit moving within us, I'm like, man, we're all capable of anything, even as believers. 
We're just as prone to wander as the one who is wayward. And so that, therefore, when we're confronting another believer over their sin, we need to remain humble. Because when we say righteous, we're not saying, I am holier than thou and you, your terrible sinner. Not that kind of approach. It's a humble posture, recognizing that, man, uh, but by the grace of God, I could be there too. You humbly approach them. And you also need to be alert, making sure that you don't fall into that same sin or a different sin because the same enemy who caused your brother or sister in Christ to backslide, he has his eye on you as well. 1 Peter 5, 8 is clear. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary of the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, assuming, assuming you're able to reach and rescue that backslidden brother or sister, causing them to turn from their sin and turn back to God, there is great reward. And this leads us to the third point. It's the restoration of the backslider. Verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, I learned this, this just this past week that during World War II, American soldiers would carry around lifesaver candies as part of their rations. In doing so, it reminded them of home. And interestingly enough, it became such a big deal that other candy makers would donate their own sugar rations to allow lifesavers to stay in production for the troops. You see, in the fog of war, lifesavers helped the troops not to forget the sweet taste of being home. Church, we have the responsibility to remind the backslidden brother or sister in Christ who's wandering in the fog of the sweet taste of being home in the family of God. It's our job to remind him or her of David's words in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. James says that those who bring back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Now again, soul in this context is a reference to someone's life or their whole person, not their eternal being, because that word soul can be used in different ways throughout the New Testament. And death does not mean spiritual death, as in separation from God. It means self-destruction and or physical death. Of course, in either case, you're still a lifesaver. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The word gain means to win. So quite literally, you can win back the life of your backslidden brother or sister in Christ. Church, the overarching point is that those who fall away from the faith will be, or excuse me, are in serious trouble. But when a backslidden believer repents and turns back to God, their troubles will be overcome by triumph. James concludes by saying that whoever brings back a backslidden believer will cover a multitude of sins, meaning that all of those sinful choices that led a particular saint to stray away from the faith will be completely concealed. Cover means to conceal. They'll be forgiven. They're going to be forgotten. Their physical life is going to be preserved, and their spiritual life is going to be purified, and therein lies the blessing. Because in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
So all this to say, allow me to close by giving you a few practical points to consider. You know what's interesting about James, by the way, sidebar? Like, every other letter in scripture is like, greet such and such, say hello to who's he was he. James is like, no, I'm going to end on this note. <laughs> Gotta love James. I can't wait to meet James someday. Like, dude, you are awesome <laughs> and bold. But anyway, let me close by giving you some practical points to consider. First, if you are here this morning feeling a bit convicted because you've been wandering from the faith, perhaps something I said just kind of triggered you to think, oh, man, that's me. If you're caught in the devil's trap, if you've admittedly backslidden in your beliefs and your behavior, then you need to take today's message as a warning. Begin there. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Mercy is right around the corner for you. Apollo 13 astronaut Jim Lovell, listen to what he said. He said, we do not realize what we have on earth until we leave it. And I believe this is also true for those who've wandered in their faith and left the church. You may not realize it immediately, but soon enough you're going to begin to realize how good it is to be in the family of God. So friend, let me encourage you not to learn this lesson the hard way. The Lord is willing and ready to forgive you and welcome you back home right now. But you need to be willing to turn from your sin and turn back to him. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you are backslidden in your beliefs and your behavior right now, you're not feeling the refreshment of the Lord. Maybe you just started the process and you're like, I'm living the dream. I'm not feeling this. You're going to feel it eventually. But there's other people that might be here today that you know you've been kind of backsliding. You've been, you've been going a little wayward. You've been going out of the field a little bit and you're getting farther and farther away from Jesus, you're miserable. You're miserable. And your heart isn't at peace. This is why. Come back to the Lord. Repent and times are refreshing to come. Second, as believers, as believers, so I'm talking to, you know, everyone or most of you here today, we need to pray that the Lord would prevent us from wandering astray. We cannot live in, in naivety because in our flesh we are prone to wander. Just like Robert Robinson when he's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Sometimes we, can we just feel it? The Apostle Paul felt it when he said, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I, what I don't want to do, I do do, and there's this tug of war that happens. And sometimes, sometimes, maybe more times than we like to admit, we, we go the way of sin <laughs> instead of the way of, of, of the Lord. We need to pray that God would prevent us from wandering astray. Our daily attitude should echo the words of Psalm 119, 10 and 11. It says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander, Lord, from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's, that's, that's one of the areas, that's one of the preventative measures that you can do to prevent yourself from wandering. Store up his word in your heart. And lastly... As a church, we must maintain a failure-is-not-an-option attitude when it comes to bringing a backslidden believer back home. As long as they're still breathing, there is still hope. 
In fact, if you're here this morning and your heart is grieving over a family member or a friend or a loved one who's wandered away from the faith, let me encourage you to commit to praying for them every single day and don't stop praying for them until the Lord makes a move. Ian Bounds said, I think Christians fail so often to get answers to their prayers because they don't wait long enough on God. They just drop down, say a few words, and then jump up and forget and expect God to answer them. Such praying always reminds me of the small boy ringing his neighbor's doorbell and then running away as fast as he can go. As long as they're still breathing, there is still hope. So keep on praying. And in addition to praying, if God provides you with the opportunity, do everything that you can to speak truth into their lives and try to win them back. Because your persistence might just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26 says, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. And they, then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Friends, I know it is hard, man. It is so hard to try and chase after someone who's wandered astray. Again, I mentioned earlier, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it's painful. A lot of times they don't listen. Maybe they're belligerent. They fight against you. And, and, and it's, it's, you feel this small. You're trying, but it's just like you're not getting through. I understand that it's hard. But oftentimes, when a believer comes back to Jesus and forsakes their sins, a lot of times they'll attribute that to, you know what, you never gave up on me. For two years, three years, four years, ten years, the last 50 years you've been chasing after me. Why everyone else just gave up and said, forget it, this guy's a lost cause. You kept on praying for me. Friends, it is hard because we want immediate results. But let me tell you, be faithful. Trust the Lord. Do what he's called you to do. Leave the rest in his hands and never stop praying until they take their last breath. And this brings us back to today's truth to remember the righteous must relentlessly pursue the wayward. In fact, in doing so, we're actually following the example of Jesus Christ who was relentless in pursuing us. Amen? Now, for those of you who have never heard about his rescue plan before, give me two more minutes of your time because it might just save your soul for eternity. The Bible teaches that God made us to be with him, to have a relationship with him. But we sinned. We sinned. We cut ourselves off from him. Why? Because God is holy and he cannot have anything to do with sin. And so, therefore, when we die, if we are left in this sinful state, we must go to, to a place of eternal separation from God because God cannot be in the presence of sin, and that place is called hell. It's a terrible place called hell. Scripture talks about hell a lot. You know, a lot of people in today's world don't talk about hell, but we should talk a little bit more about it because, because we're, we're all living in this like short little blip of, of time and eternity, and hell is forever. Eternity is forever. And so we need to get serious in talking about it. But yet God, in his great love for us, became a man in Jesus, and he lived a... God became a man. Just figure that one out. And he, he lived a perfect life, 
And he died on the cross taking the punishment of your sins and my sins upon himself. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. And in doing so, he provided a way to receive forgiveness for our sins and be saved and receive eternal life. You see, Jesus did for you and me what we can never do for ourselves. He provided a way to rescue our souls from the penalty of hell and give us the gift of heaven. I've never met a man in my whole life or woman who didn't want to go to heaven when they die. I've met some that didn't believe in heaven and hell, but I've never met someone who said, yeah, I'd I'd prefer to, to burn and suffer for eternity and be in eternal torment. And the only people that I've ever met that, that actually preferred hell over heaven had a wrong view of hell. I actually had, I used to run a Christian radio station, uh, not radio station, radio show back in my college days on Tuesday nights. And I was presenting the gospel or something on the air one night. And I got this phone call from a guy. Um, and we were live on air. We were chit-chatting. And he just was rejecting the Lord. And he, he actually said to me, he said, listen, I would rather party and drink beer in hell than be bored in heaven. Something along those lines. And then he hung up the phone. I'm like, dude, like, he's got a wrong view of hell. That's the only person I could ever remember in my life who who actually preferred hell over heaven, but that's because they thought hell was a place of partying, when in reality it's a place of, of eternal torment and separation from God. So I've never met somebody who didn't want to go to heaven when they die, but here's the deal. I've met a lot of people who just assume that you do when you die. Huh. Like, I've just met people that's like, well, they're in a better place. So, Come on. Let's get real for a second. There is one way to go to heaven, and you can go to heaven. You can know for sure that you're going to go to heaven today. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. If you want to be forgiven for your sins and be rescued for eternity from the pit of hell, then all you must do is admit that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Salvation isn't earned or merited by good works, and it is not given to you automatically. It is given freely through an act of faith. Faith. See, Mike, that sounds too easy. It's not too easy. Jesus had to die on a cross and bear all of our sins on him in order to make this happen. And honestly, if belief in Jesus was that easy, if, if, if belief, some say, oh, that's easy believism. Listen, <laughs> belief is hard. If belief was easy, the whole world would believe in Jesus. So you need to place your faith in Jesus and you will be saved. I've heard it said that salvation is as close as your own lips and heart. And Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, affirm this. Says, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Friend, you can be saved right now by calling on the Lord. And if you've never asked him to save you, let today be the day of your salvation. How do I do that? Ask him to save you. Ask him to save you. There's no magical way to do it. Sometimes you could pray. I mean, it's a good thing to pray like, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner and I confess my sins to you and, and, I, and I repent and I, and, I want, and I want to trust you as my Savior and follow you with my life. You could pray that way and if you mean that sincerely, the Lord will save you. He will. You could walk out of here for sure knowing that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Now, if you'd like more information on what it means to receive Christ, you can mark it on your Connect slip. You can speak with me after the service. You can grab an information packet 
right here at the pulpit. Once the service is over, just come up, come on up, grab it, take it, it's free. But let me encourage you, don't leave here without being rescued by Jesus. This time I'd like to invite the praise team forward as we close in song. And we're going to close by singing a, a little bit more of a modern rendition of the classic hymn, Come Thou Fount, to remember Robert Robinson's testimony. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are so patient toward us as your children. God, it's a great reminder to me, even as a dad, when I see my children making mistakes or wandering away from the truth of things that we have taught them, Lord, you don't lash out on us, God. You don't condemn us. In a gentle spirit, Lord, you just try to lead us back home. And God, we admit that we are prone to wander, and we feel that tug to want to go the way of the world very often. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that we would realign ourselves with you. And, Lord, I think of all of us in this room, or most of us in this room probably have someone in our lives that we're thinking of right now that has wandered away from the truth. And, Lord Jesus, we pray in the name, the powerful name of Jesus, that you would draw them back to yourself, Lord. God, perhaps somebody here has, has used all their options. They've reached out. They've been praying. They're feeling discouraged because they're not seeing their loved one come back to you. Lord, break their hearts today. Break that wayward believer's hearts. Bring them back to your son, Jesus, Lord. Keep us from wandering astray. And we'll give you the glory, God. May we see movements in the lives of our backslidden loved ones, even today. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.